O lamentable creature, once revered, now hunted, caught, and released, and again and again for sport. Fatigue and defeat, each time stripped of a limb your captors eat. You with the face of the future, legs of the past, and soul of the present. You in stasis in decay, sullied by hands at midnight. You who cannot die, but in our sordid hearts, deny wisdom for knowledge. I feel like there were a lot of references there, perhaps to the organism of the week, and of course to today's <laughs> topic, which is on time, embodiment of the past, present, and future. Yeah, I don't know what we're going to call this episode. It's just <laughs> kind of an idea I had because I've been thinking of a few disparate things, each relating to one's and one's society's depiction of the past, depiction of the future, mm. and also how it how that relates to the way that we experience the present. And of course, this is kind of relevant to this podcast specifically because our whole thing, our whole gimmick, if you want yes. to be cynical, is that we are trying to paint a picture of a utopian future. And I was like, is this even a good thing to do? Is there historical precedent for this being useful? Is there historical precedent of this on, mm -hmm. a, on a large scale? And also, I think I mentioned in last week's episode, I was reading a book by Jules Verne called Paris in the 20th Century, which was ostensibly pretty dystopian, but moreover than any kind of cynicism or like negativity it might have imparted on me, I was just impressed by how accurate the predictions were 100 mm -hmm. years out. So I was like, that's really fascinating. So we have a few different topics that we're going to try and squeeze, I guess, into one... Semi-coherent conversation. Sure. And we're starting, where else? Ancient Greece. At the Oracle in Delphi. I don't know how you refer to the Oracle. It's a person, but I feel like it's also a, a phenomena, a an place. An institution. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I have to admit, despite being like... 22 and having more than a passing knowledge in Greek mythology, especially from a literary sense, I honestly did not know much about the Oracle before we decided to chat about it on this episode. So doing some research on that was fun. Just to relay the mythology of it, the story of it for people who maybe don't know, the Oracle of Delphi, Delphi was a place, the Oracle was a person who lived inside this place mm. where people came from all around ancient Greece to receive prophecies about the future, to ask questions and receive answers. And the mythological story about, about the location of this place was that Zeus, the king of the gods of Olympus, mm -hmm. released two eagles in different directions because he wanted to see where they'd collide so that he could see where is the center of the universe. Mm -hmm. And even when I read that, that really inspired me for some reason. I think it's this vision of divine beings having such a curiosity. Is that You're having questions that need answers? Mm -hmm. So... In this spot, which was at Delphi, at the, I think it was the foot of Mount Parnassus in mm -hmm. ancient Greece, they built what is the Temple of Apollo, who was Zeus's son. And Apollo, among other things, was the god of truth and prophecy. Mm -hmm. So fitting. And the oracle, who in this place was called the Pythia, or Pythia, which was kind of a role or title handed down, I think for centuries this place was in, was in operation, was a priestess who would enter a kind of shamanic state when people came and spoke to her and asked her questions. I found conflicting reports on this, as you'd imagine, because mm. it's like over 2,000 years ago. But the way I envision it is that they asked her questions and she, I mean, there was some report that she like inhaled some air that was coming through the vents. Yeah, there was like ethylene in it. Is that right. the right compound? Yeah. 
Yeah, but how I imagine it is more her in a kind of self-hypnosis state mm. of prophecy. It only happened once a month, right? Like the seventh yeah. of the month because that was Apollo's birthday. So she's communicating with the gods, mm-hmm. with the fates. And then she relays the information. And again, there's conflicting reports whether she relayed it directly to the askers of the questions or whether there was a team of priests there to translate her incoherent prophetic yeah. bambling. But that's what it is. And we wanted to talk about that. Yeah, I was happy to learn about this because all I knew of oracles was the idea that is in kind of the new age spirituality of like oracle decks of cards, which all have different meanings. Sometimes they're just images, sometimes they're words, sometimes a combo thereof. And I was like, oh, an oracle, it's like a deck that you refer to for advice in new age spirituality. And I suppose I knew an oracle was like used to be a person. But I didn't realize that there was this one specific place where there was the most famous oracle, Mm. which I was fascinated to learn about because it's such a phenomenon. It seems like it stretched across countries, across borders in ways that things didn't used to. Like things used to be pretty... You mean it was famous? It was famous. Yeah. Yeah. And what another thing I found funny about it is that it has this kind of self-centered nature where they're saying, oh, the center of the universe, that's right here. Yeah. We would never say that today because, well, for one, we know uh, astronomically that this is not the center <laughs> of the universe, not even close. Yes. And for another, I feel like we're just much more reluctant to um, to take that kind of extreme pride in, mm. that, in our place, maybe for the better, but yeah, that's something I, that's uh, always impressed me about the Greeks. Yeah. And this temple famously had three inscriptions upon the doorway. And then, of course, there were these other inscriptions throughout the building, all things the... Pythia had said or yeah, universal the, truths the, the attribution of the maxims they're called the mm-hmm. Delphic maxims again there's I, I think a lot of dispute about that of course but I think the explanation that I like the most that seems the most believable to me is that they were just popular slogans yes that they kind of inscribed there and that were perhaps later attributed to mm-hmm. either the oracle or to other philosophers of the day yeah the oracle was also famous for giving really ambiguous answers to questions so i feel like these are answers that maybe she like referred to someone said oh what am i supposed to do about my daughter wanting to marry this man and then she'd just say know thyself and then he'd be like ah yes it's so funny she's like she pulls her color and she's like uh know thyself <laughs> so yes know thyself that was the first of the inscriptions above the entrance to the temple I just, I love that idea of, um, of course it was in Latin, it didn't literally mm-hmm. say know thyself. I love that idea of maxims being carved into stone in buildings that everyone has to pass through. Mm-hmm. I guess the only real version of that we have today that comes to mind is that a few days ago we were walking around and there was a school and there were two doors on the one side facing us and one said boys and one said girls. But there's yeah. nothing that's like prescriptive. Mm-hmm. Act like this. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really great. Maybe some churches. Yeah. So know thyself is the first one, and I would say the most famous. And this quote is associated with Socrates and Plato. They both spoke and wrote about it, respectively, a lot. What do you think it means? I interpreted it three ways. And one way is know thyself as in kind of like stay in your lane. It's like <laughs> there was a oral history about a story of Prometheus, and then someone said to him, know thyself. And it just meant like, because he was trying to do something that he knew was not right or he knew would upset the gods and they said, know thyself. And it meant stay humble, basically. 
that's the main reading that I take of it. In conjunction with the other two maxims above the door, I think that all three of them were basically different ways of saying that people should humble themselves before they try and consult the realm of the gods. Mm-hmm. Know your place, effectively. Yeah. To me, that wasn't the first interpretation I had of that. No, I had the the other reading, which was learn about yourself, Mm -hmm. especially self-understanding before you seek prophecy. Yeah. And Socrates was a a big advocate for this. He basically just kept writing that it's ridiculous that there's all these people who seek knowledge about things as broad as politics or science or math or literature before understanding themselves. Mm -hmm. They've got it the, the wrong way around. And... I think that's relevant to this discussion about our preoccupation in the modern world with the future mm-hmm. as well as the past without really consulting who we are in the present. Yes, as we'll get to later when we talk about the evolution of our relationship to the past and the future yeah. is that there's a lot of different ways of thinking about it that I didn't realize because I've just grown up having one relationship to the past and the future. And one of them that I kind of resonate with and will probably talk about when we're talking about this relationship in the Solacene is the looking within instead of looking to a priestess or looking to a priest mm. for the guidance of what the future holds or how we should relate to our ancestors. You have to look within. It'll make more sense later, I promise. Well, I think in a lot of ways it is one and, one and the same. Yes, Anything else on Know Thyself? I was listening to a podcast and it was called The Future of Hope is like the series. Nice. And Know Thyself resonated with me because it was these four different people, all experts in like random stuff, talking about how they see the future of hope. So it's like, what does that even mean? I don't know. Just the future of how we hope, I suppose. Yeah. And my idea for the future of hope is a generation who like seeks enlightenment and I recommend listening to this podcast series because it's really interesting and I feel like it really relates to this maxim because all the people were saying okay how we used to hope was kind of just like recklessly we were like oh the future is going to be great like the 50s kind of vision of the future all jet planes and everything and they said we really can't do that that's not responsible so we need to find ways of knowing ourselves in order to envision the future that's utopianism is what they were kind of mm-hmm. referring to, right? Yeah. Yeah, that is especially a, an interesting discussion on this podcast. Yes. This <laughs> the utopian podcast. The second Delphic maxim was nothing in excess mm-hmm. or moderation, which is probably the most famous Greek virtue, especially associated with Aristotle and his doctrine of the mean, because the most famous Greek vice, I suppose, that tended to plague all their epic heroes was hubris, which -hmm. is typically an excess of pride, excess of the self, I guess you'd say. So I was questioning whether we can discuss this in relation to future, past. Can there be moderation in dwelling in the future, moderation in considering the past? Is that a thing? I think there has to be. In Taoism, there is a, this like falsely attributed quote to the Tao Te Ching, and it says something along the lines of, Fear and hope are equally evil, like is the essence of it. And I think what that is saying is we need moderation in our hope, but also in our stresses about the future. And if you want to reference what it 
was actually written is in verse 13. And it's talking mainly about fear and fame and infamy, I suppose. What do you think of that? Fear and hope being equally evil. Yeah. I think it's very uh, fascinating because we often hear hope portrayed as a very positive thing. Yes. And I understand that it can have a lot of positive ramifications. Mm -hmm. Fear can even have some positive ramifications. Yeah. But to me, it just speaks about stoicism and taking things as they are, especially in the present. Because mm -hmm. I feel like we hear quite often think pieces, classes, tweets about how living in the present is a dying art. And, you know, we need to save people's experience of the present through mindfulness and meditation and techniques, which really shouldn't be necessary and never were in the past. Mm -hmm. But today they are. But I never hear that our relationship with the future is similarly broken. And the past is similarly broken and that's, you know, it's like uh, scales. It's like the present's messed up because of this, because of this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the way that our brains work is basically that we can only make predictions on the future. We can only process our surroundings based on things we've seen before. That's why we see faces in the clouds and imagine something in your peripheral that isn't actually there. But it's like we can only make our stresses or our hopes based on what we've experienced it's very hard for us to do so in immediate light because it's always kind of these extremes that we've experienced before that are informing our predictions for the future because it's like if you were in a car accident in your past every time you get in a car that's going to be what flashes through your head not the thousand times you were safely in a vehicle right if that makes sense so that's the evil of fear what about the evil of hope on one of these podcast episodes the author of Eat, Pray, Love, actually. <laughs> she was talking about her life partner recently passed away from cancer. And she said all these people who were around her as she was dying was saying, oh, but there was this one time that this person recovered from cancer at the last minute. So, like, don't give up hope. But then that didn't allow them to, like, be there and, like, experience the moment of, like, hey, these are your last few moments with your loved one. And she was talking about how that can be an equally negative experience because then these people are going to live in a bit of regret after their loved one does pass away because they refuse to be in the reality that they were like holding up this kind of unrealistic hope. Yeah. I actually spent a rather morbid evening recently reading online stories of people dying and what their last words were to their families. Yeah. Have you ever done that or like considered no. that? A really common refrain I found was, it is what it is by people who accept it. Mm -hmm. And that sounds kind of like that, uh, like a rural wisdom. It's mm -hmm. like, oh, you know, grandpa, he really knew what he was talking about. Mm -hmm. But it's also, I mean, it's true for one thing, but it's also, it's about focusing on the present. If you take the words really literally, it's like, mm -hmm. it is what it is right now. It's not, yeah. it isn't what it will be. And it mm -hmm. isn't what it was. Like it is what it is yeah. in the second. It's kind of in inspiring. I'm sounding like a motivational speaker right <laughs> now. Every second counts. Yeah. Which is very true. Third Maxim, which has some translational question marks, but surety brings ruin is what mm -hmm. I found. Or another version was a pledge, then calamity, mm -hmm. which sounds more accurate because it's like grammatically weird in English. Mm -hmm. And I always think they must have done some rewriting to make these things catchy in English as they were presumably in Latin. Yeah. And this one seems kind of straightforward. And Diogenes, the philosopher, he saw it as like, beware false certainty. Mm -hmm. And I think that's about right. It's try not to... Get comfortable? Yeah, try not to get comfortable. But also I was thinking just try not to put all your hopes on it being 
sunny tomorrow because it might rain. And if you only dress for the sun, it's mm -hmm. going to get rainy. But from a more kind of ontological, metaphysical standpoint, it's kind of like, don't always trust mortal reasoning. My first, when I read this, I thought, isn't this kind of an ironic thing to be carved at the door of, a, of an oracle mm -hmm. who's going to be telling you what she thinks is sureties about the future and what I assume everyone there believes to be sureties about the future. Mm -hmm. And the way the Greeks saw fate was a really funny thing. There's a lot of stories about, I mean, even the most famous one with the oracle is Oedipus going there and her telling him something tragic and him not believing it and then actively trying to make it not happen. And then in mm -hmm. a roundabout way, it happens. Mm -hmm. If anyone's ever seen That's So Raven, it's very Oedipal. Yes. In a way. <laughs> I don't want to be known for that quote. Um, but what do you think about surety brings ruin? How I interpreted that maxim was that basically I'm reading this book called Garden City and it was talking about the Pharisees in the Bible who were Jewish leaders and they basically took the, the Torah, like the Bible's rules, which I think there's like 167, like this is an estimation. But then they went and they, for every single rule that was written in the Torah, they made like a hundred rules hmm. so that they wouldn't accidentally break it. Okay. They were trying to be sure that they wouldn't break the rules of the Bible. Sounds like a good thing. But then when Jesus came around and he was kind of challenging these rules that the Pharisees had written, and it's like Jesus wasn't saying the Sabbath is a bad thing because he would do miracles on the Sabbath. He was saying, you need to have an open mind. It's like, nothing's static things are dynamic is basically what he was saying and so surety brings ruin to me is when you're trying to make sure that the rules of your religion or the rules of your lifestyle that there's no cracks in them it will just bring about cracks and it will bring about kind of a subpar experience right. on earth because we're mortal yes so when you try and micromanage everything mm -hmm. that isn't in your control that's why they say Jesus take the wheel, right? Yeah. I think Jesus takes the wheel is, is like <laughs> surety brings, like this sounds silly, but this is what I think it is. Obviously, they were using Greek gods, but <laughs> just to use uh, divinity, just to use like the general term of divinity. It's like surety brings ruin, so Jesus take the wheel. Yeah. That's kind of what it is, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like we need to allow things to evolve. And I feel like that's a good transition perhaps into our conversation about kind of the later phases of our relationship to the past and the future. Basically, when the oracles were around, people thought kind of in the way that Hesiod wrote, that things were just getting worse and they're just going to keep getting worse. Yeah, so you're referencing, you should just mention it for yeah. people who don't know or have forgotten, Hesiod's Five Ages of Mankind, which mm -hmm. started in the distant past with the first humans who lived in the Golden Age and mm -hmm. everything was perfect, kind of like the Garden of Eden. Everyone was virtuous everything was prosperous, mm -hmm. slowly kind of uh, faded into the Silver Age, then the Bronze Age. He uh, predicted that things would just continue on this gradual ethical and mm -hmm. material decline, I mm -hmm. suppose. Yeah, so they thought it was all downhill. Then, of course, there were a lot of people then and then the later years after that who just thought things were as they were, like the prehistoric period before we wrote a history mm. people didn't really realize that things used to be a lot worse like materially like that people didn't know how to farm like people didn't really know the history they just kind of knew what their grandparents told them and what they hoped for their kids and that was a static kind of hope and 
history, like vision of the past and the future. They just thought it was all the same. Mm. Plato and Socrates started to kind of think things are a circle. So things are cyclical. There was bad things that happened. Now might be really good or now there might be tragedy. There'll also be prosperity or tragedy in the future. So even when Plato was writing The Republic, he thought this is a utopia, but this utopia will fail. And even within the utopia, there will be these cycles of existence. Yeah. Fast forward to the Enlightenment, when things just started happening, basically, like people were like, oh, we have these ideas. We have the scientific method. We have reform in the church. We have reform in the government. This is progress. And then that's for the first time in human history that we thought things are getting better. Things are going to are actually linear. Like we have this history that everyone kind of knows now. Right. Things obviously are getting better and, and we then start, they're going to keep going. And we started to characterize some of the centuries before as the dark ages. Yeah. Which is something like, for instance, Hesiod never did that. Mm -hmm. The enlightened way of thinking is what I just thought everyone kind of had. <laughs> but then I realized there's a modern way of thinking, which is, okay, things used to be garbage. Things are garbage. Things are going to stay <laughs> garbage. And then I feel like everyone has their personal... Um, golden age they refer to maybe it's the 50s maybe it's nostalgia yeah nostalgia but mm. everyone has something super personal to them which is their kind of golden age that they refer to it's as. funny because it'll be like 13 year olds now yeah they're like man 2011 yeah those, those were the days yeah <laughs> well, i guess 13 year olds were only three in 2011 mm -hmm. i don't know i don't know i don't know either <laughs> but until now i feel like when we refer to history we refer to our ancestors or we'd refer to the lineage of our religion or the lineage of our culture, we'd say we can't change that. Like that is set in stone. Yeah, we have to honor that. We have to honor that. And I think there's this kind of revolution of thought that's happening now, which is a good thing, of that, yes, we need to honor the core theologies and the core virtues of our lineage, but we also are allowed to evolve them because that's kind of what, when I was referring to the example of the New Testament in the Bible of Jesus said that, he was like, okay, we need to honor these histories, these rules that were spoken by God to Moses on the Mount Sinai, but we also have to kind of update them a little bit. And we're allowed to update the way things are experienced. And I read that during the pandemic, 50% of young people tried a new spiritual practice, which like blew my mind. I was like, this is such a new way of thinking of our relationship to the past and the future. It's like, it feels almost optimistic to me that people said, I'm going to take this opportunity to connect with my heritage or connect with a different heritage, perhaps. Right. And I mean, did it specify which types of spiritual? No. Thinking? It struck me just the way you phrase that, that religion or spirituality might just be synonymous with phrase how we understand the past and the future like that's yeah. a, a large part of what religion and spirituality mm -hmm. do be it your individual future the afterlife we were discussing about that this morning or a culture's future mm -hmm. just an example of a modern spirituality that i wanted to mention was astrology mm -hmm. horoscopes from what is it maybe 2015 or 2016 when that started to have this resurgence mm -hmm. I was like, what is going on? Like, this is, this is crazy. And I'm not the first person to observe that it's kind of coincidental how it, its rise in popularity has 
corresponded with all the craziness of the last few years. Mm -hmm. Pandemic, Trump, climate mm -hmm. change, out of fear, as you put it. Mm -hmm. And it struck me that not just through horoscopes, which tell you about how your next month is going to go, astrology and I guess your sign, which vaguely gives you a, a blueprint for your life. Astrology has this benefit of also being able to contextualize the past. Because mm -hmm. when someone does something erratic, you can say, oh, that's a Gemini. Yeah. Oh, Mercury is in retrograde. I don't know if Geminis are erratic. I actually know very, very little about this, and I'm yeah. kind of pleased to, but just the <laughs> idea that it provides a narrative, and that's all that people want, and they don't especially mm -hmm. care whether it comes from the moon, the stars, the church, or just genuine rolling of the dice. I was thinking mm -hmm. about something like the magic eight ball, yeah. or like the fortune cookies. Yeah. These, are, these seem like they're kind of like holdovers mm -hmm. from a pre-rationalist time, but yeah. we still keep them in just as little quirks of society. Yes, exactly. We thought we could logic our way out of everything. We were <laughs> like, in the Enlightenment, we were like, there's an answer to everything. But then now the things are getting so crazy, just like in society, the way that culture is kind of disappearing, but also we need to find a way to like maintain the creation and existence of culture. The people are looking to these kind of spiritual techniques yeah to even just find the language to express these experiences that we all have yeah that, that's um one thing i found when i was reading about kind of science the science of astrology and the popularity of it a lot of people are just saying it genuinely just gives you a vocabulary that lets your brain explain mm -hmm. what's going on with people and the future and the past yeah and also a lot of studies show that people turn to astrology as i'm sure they do for all sorts of spirituality mm -hmm. in terms of stress and tension and anxiety. So it makes mm -hmm. sense. Another little quirk that I wanted to mention, because I was trying to think about if we had anything kind of similar to the Oracle in today's, say, North American industrialized, largely post-religion um, culture. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that occurred to me, it's not so much a place as it is a time or a day, was Groundhog Day. Okay, I because do like that. It's it's like this uniquely irrational holdover tradition in our culture. It's like, it's just this one day of the calendar where I don't know if anyone puts any stock into it. I don't know if anyone genuinely believes it. It's like, well, we still do it. Yeah. We don't really care about it, but we still do it every February 2nd. And for those who don't know, the tradition <laughs> is that there is a groundhog and everyone kind of gathers around this little... Burrow. Enclosure, burrow. Mm -hmm. I guess it's probably usually in a zoo, right? Usually. And if it sees its shadow, which means if it retreats back into its little hole mm -hmm. or house, I don't, I've never actually watched it, um, <laughs> then winter continues. And if it stays out, then we're going to have a short winter. Like it's going to yeah. be over soon. And there's a reason this is February 2nd. It's because it's the dullest time of the year. So we yeah. need anything to one, get outside, two, get outside together, and mm -hmm. three, um, entertain ourselves with it. So we start watching this groundhog scurry around. It's like, will he? Will he? Ooh, like that. I, some facts about Groundhog Day. I don't know why I was, I thought this required some context, <laughs> some, context some background. But I, I wanted to know how old this was and whether it ever really was. People believed. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's also the Farmer's Almanac, but that does actually have some scientific basis, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Farmer's Almanac is kind of released every year and it's like talking, it's predicting the winter for the year and the mm -hmm. precipitation and things like that based on trends, based on 
yeah. signs that they can see. I don't know, but that, they are actually pretty accurate. Groundhog Day is not accurate. It's effectively just flipping a coin. Yeah. And also, it was a real revelation to me as a young person that it isn't just one groundhog. Every location that celebrates Groundhog Day has its own groundhog. You just thought it was Shubanakti Sam? That was the name of our groundhog. Yeah. So I just assumed our it was everybody. Groundhog. <laughs> it's funny what you say like that, right? Yeah, that was our province's groundhog, <laughs> Shubanakti Sam. If you're interested in some other famous groundhog names I found, the most infamous, of course, is Punxsutawney Phil, who mm-hmm. was immortalized yes. in the Bill Murray film, Groundhog Day. But there's also Dunkirk Dave. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> General Beauregard Lee from Georgia. <laughs> and Chuckles the Ninth from Connecticut. Mm. He's their ninth Chuckles. Mm. <laughs> so a long-storied lineage of groundhogs. And also, when it comes to groundhogs, that's not the organism of the week. It should have oh, been. But um, been, yeah. I didn't realize that groundhog was just meant the same thing as woodchuck mm. and marmot. Like, that's all the same animal. Yeah. And some other names that it's had in the past are land beaver and whistle pig. Nice. <laughs> but as to this long tradition of Groundhog Day, it emerged from the German-speaking areas of settler U.S., especially the Pennsylvania Dutch communities. They used to use badges. This was mm-hmm. in the 1700s and 1800s. And another very similar tradition was on the Christian Candlemas celebration, when the clergy mm-hmm. would hand out lit candles. Mm-hmm. People would kind of... Uh, Say, oh, if the candles were short, then the winter's going to be like this. If the candles are long, the winter's mm-hmm. going to be like this. So I really do think it's like February is a dark time. Yeah. So we've got to do something about it. But the Bill Murray movie, it kind of pokes fun at this like small town, very pageanty type of celebration. And everyone's mm-hmm. like overly enthusiastic about it. And there's like a song and dance routine. And it's like, mm-hmm. this is ridiculous. The whole town's themed after it. But the more I think about celebrations like this, the more I'm really on the side of those people. It's mm-hmm. like that kind of pageantry, you know what? If it wasn't there, there'd just be no pageantry. Yeah. We've got to have Everything parades for excess. something. We might as well parade for the groundhog. Exactly. I feel like in the solo scene, there will be this return to traditions. And I don't mean like return to a tradition that existed. Because I don't think there's any time in human history that I'm like, if we just were like that, things would be good. Yeah. Because they've proven themselves that wasn't good. Mm. But I think in the future, there'll be this mixture of Groundhog Days, this liberty to, like, there's a freedom of religion now. It's a human right. It's in the constitutions of Canada and the States, and I'm sure lots of other countries. But it's like, I feel like there isn't actually this, like, we've almost placed it upon ourselves as lack of freedom. We feel like we need to make everything a bit palatable because we have that tendency to be like things need to be marketable so like christmas needs to be marketable groundhog day needs to be marketable we can't actually be acting like we believe in the groundhog right so we need to like make the sacralization it. of christmas exactly yeah and i feel like i don't mean everyone needs to be the exact same holidays but perhaps you create a new tradition on thanksgiving or create a new day in your family or in your community where mid-february you all plant garlic or whatever and it's garlic day and you talk about the history of garlics and something i don't 100%. know 100 <laughs> i mean almost all our holidays had some type of harvest related or mm-hmm. meteorological related it's like this is halfway between the equinox and the solstice like they just mm-hmm. had a bunch of reasons like that which our ancestors needed to help mm-hmm. navigate the times yeah and we don't need anymore because we have 
mm-hmm. supermarkets. Yeah. So it can seem silly to still celebrate those. And also new ones, almost by definition, have a type of artificism, especially mm-hmm. when not everyone buys into them. And especially as they have this profiteering undercurrent. I don't want to get too much into that, though, because the organism of the week this week is not the groundhog nor the whistle pig. It is, in fact, the dreadnought. The dreadnought. Yeah, the dreadnoughtus srani. That's the Latin name. I know you can see it on my page, so (laughs) I'm just going to ask. Is it a dinosaur? It is a dinosaur. Uh, It was a dinosaur. I'll just ask you to describe it. My little sketch. (laughs) Oh, Aaron. Were they striped? No. That was your interpretation. Well, here's the thing. I don't think scientists know. It's true. I mean, it's like scientists don't even know if they had feathers. So who are they to tell me it wasn't striped? I'm going to call it a striped, very long-necked giraffe-like creature yes. with a long tail, mm-hmm. a hat, it's eating a plant, very tall, right? small legs, belly. <laughs> I just added the belly it. in because of its weight. Uh, but yeah, the dreadnought, in case you couldn't tell by the name, was an example of a titanosaur, which mm-hmm. basically just means a really big dinosaur. They have found partial skeletons of two different specimens, and they estimate that this beast weighed over 49,000 kilograms. Wow. Yeah. And it was 26 meters long. They estimate it to have the biggest mass of any land animal. Land animal? I guess I wrote that. Every, every, <laughs> of any <laughs> land animal ever. But I, I kind of like that typo. Land animal. Land animal. Dreadnoughtus means fear nothing. Ah. Uh. Yeah, because it was so big, even though it was a herbivore, so mm-hmm. a gentle giant. It was around in the late Cretaceous period, probably around 70 to 76 million years ago. And do you want to guess why I chose this organism for this week? The name, perhaps? Fear nothing? Fear nothing? Actually, no, but I guess it Ah. makes sense. I just thought, well, we're talking about the past, so a really old organism Mm. would make sense. But also, there's this idea that a lot of people share that dinosaur fossils were at least part of inspiration for a lot of mythology, like dragons, etc. And that's something that from a kind of cynical perspective, you know, longing for the romance of the olden days, I could Mm -hmm. be like, oh, I wish we still had that kind of ignorance is bliss. Mm -hmm. But in my mind, the truth is actually just as exciting. Like that's that's just as wild as what they used to think that dragons were roaming around. It's like these were Mm -hmm. effectively dragons roaming around. (laughs) Like this was 49,000 kilograms. We're not just guessing that. We used like 3D laser software to simulate the entire skeleton from mm-hmm. a few bones that were found. It wasn't a few. It's like over 50%. But yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I mean, I feel like since the Enlightenment and since like all of the scientific leaps, there's just like, well, why would we need to mythologize things? Why would we need to make up stories surrounding these things? Yeah. It's like we literally don't have to make up stories. We can use different the, stories the, from the, the past. The truth is... Exciting. Stranger than fiction. Yeah. Neil deGrasse Tyson talks about that in a kind of corny way when he talks about space, but yeah. he's like, well, and he'll say it in like a really dramatic way about yes. all the particles in your body can be used for every element on earth or something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, another thing I wanted to mention about dinosaurs is that people always say, I don't know if this is outdated, but people say that kids go through a dinosaur phase. Mm-hmm. I remember I had dinosaur pajamas, mm-hmm. but I was not a kid. I was like 13, 14. Well, it's a adolescent. Yeah. Um, but then it just, I was like, well, good for them. And the real question is, why do we ever leave the dinosaur phase? Mm. There were just these legit giants used to roam the earth. Mm-hmm. And we're kind of like, oh, yeah, no, dinosaurs, yeah, they existed. Yeah. 
but we should be i should be shouting it right now mm-hmm. in excitement yeah i feel like we need to have wonder back in our lives wonder is what I'm allow about. ourselves to be in awe there's this other podcast i was listening to and this man john o'donohue he was a theologian philosopher psychologist i think and he was talking about like our relationship to time and he said the celts had a very a cool relationship to time the way that we don't today and we a lot of other cultures kind of didn't have and they saw that our moment right now is like a link between the past and the future yeah because right now we always think now is all we have it's like no right now it's your responsibility to relay how cool dinosaurs are to the future generation. If you don't do that, no one will. Hmm. If you don't relay to future generations that, hey, on Christmas Eve, we like open a present, future generations won't do that. And it's like, I don't think that we have to say everything. We don't have to say it all in a positive light. You can say, hey, there were these persecutions or these genocides that happened, both the good things and the bad things of the past to the future generations or else, They'll forget that the bad things happened. And what's unique about our current time is that we can do that with more accuracy than anyone ever in history because we know more about the past and we know, like Hesiod could not have done that in an unbiased way because he just thought that everyone who came before him was better than him. Yeah. And we know more accurately the flaws and also the good things about Mm -hmm. our predecessors. I had this quote which was that science and technology revolutionize our lives, but memory, tradition, and myth frame our response. Again, it's just this idea of narrative Mm -hmm. and also cynicism and the information age in which we live right now. And I just think for the most part, modern life has kind of trivialized what used to be grand mysteries. Like the weather tomorrow used to be like, well, who knows? The sky's red. Shepherd's going to be happy. Yeah. But today we can check the weather, you know, a couple of weeks from now and it can be pretty accurate. And mm-hmm. I think that's objectively better and more convenient, but we have to think about what we lost there, which is mm-hmm. the idea of the unknown, and especially an unknown so great that people wouldn't even really consider it. Whereas today mm-hmm. we might be fretting, oh, I hope my concert in two months won't get rained off. Yeah. Right? But they, for one thing, wouldn't even know that there was a concert going to happen in two months. So yeah. that kind of stress wasn't in their mind. And for another, they'd be like, well, why do I, why am I going to worry about whether it's going to rain? I can't do anything about it. Yeah. But I think for us, the immediate access that we have to almost everything tricks our brains into thinking that we can can affect it it. yeah yeah i was thinking about that this morning of because i just always have anxiety and i was like literally thinking about it like thinking okay tomorrow i don't have anything for lunch like i haven't packed anything it's like thinking about it we think that we can prepare our minds for every single outcome and then nothing will surprise us kind of is that the opposite of stoicism is that stoicism of just like we think if we can think of every possible outcome, if we can think of the worst outcome, nothing will disappoint us. Well, it's definitely not abiding by that maxim that surety brings ruin. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there was, there was definitely just this embrace of spontaneity, I think, has slowly been eroded. And spontaneity used to be much of what defined life. Mm-hmm. But now it's like our days off are scheduled, our vacations yeah. are scheduled months ahead of time. And I'm not like faulting the people who do this because we do it too every yeah. weekend, every year in advance, basically. But... Mm-hmm. It's just a darn shame that we have to do that. Mm-hmm. Because I like the idea of not having anything for the day ahead mm-hmm. and then just on a whim saying, I'm going to go to Morocco mm-hmm. today. Yeah. Yeah. 
how I framed it for my vision of the solar people. What, what do we call them? The solar scenes. The solar scene citizens. Sure. I framed it as this, that the relationship. Solar sites. That they will pay respect to ancestors, thus choosing to remember the positives. Because when you pay respect to something, you're honoring the positive memory of it, usually. Right. But still critiquing them for the mistakes just framed in a constructive way. So saying, our ancestors taught us this lesson so that we don't have to experience it and still framing it in a honoring way. Because we don't want to, like, it, it's different for different people. Obviously, there's horrible people in history. Right. They can be framed in a different well, way. Well, I think honoring is not maybe the right word, but, I mean, you don't have to carve them into Mount Rushmore, but you yeah. have to, you can't burn the history books, let me put it like that. Mm -hmm. And in addition to not burning the history books, something I've been thinking about is better education as to the good as well as the bad of history and culture, but not just writing off people as villain, villainous and mm -hmm. you know equating them to like Darth Vader or something. Because the thing with Star Wars is that I don't know what Darth Vader stood for, mm -hmm. right? So I don't know how to stop the next stormtroopers. Yes. You know what I'm talking about? So if you're telling us about this horrible Canadian prime minister, yeah. you have to tell us what his platform was. Yeah, you have to say why he the was things horrible. things he did. And, and yeah how he gained power. Yes. But also, as you said, with the history in a positive way, it's like we only learn about a few positive things that happened in history. We don't learn about all of the things around the world that oh, yeah. happened. And barely any negative things, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, I just think history is a is a ridiculous oversight of the modern, mm -hmm. uh, North American anyway, education curriculum. Yeah. And it's so localized. Mm -hmm. And I understand that, the connection with your town, but you should also be able to understand those world wars that happened a hundred mm -hmm. years ago. Yeah. And a lot of graduates today can't. Mm -hmm. I think this is related to Hesiod actually, because one thing I did like about his five ages of mankind is that because he considered things degrading, not just by chance or by the will of the gods or materially, but fundamentally the way he characterized it was ethically, we're getting worse. Like mm -hmm. we're not moving in the right direction as a species ethically yeah. and I am more morally flawed than my ancestors. Mm -hmm. What I like about that is it, it's, it assumes the responsibility of yeah. the present because it's kind of like, well, I'm flawed. I should mm -hmm. be working to change it. And that's a great thing. But yes. I feel like today, one of the faults of the way we conceptualize the past and the present is that the people of the past were really bad. We're better than them. Mm -hmm. And whether it's true or not is kind of irrelevant. It's about whether it's a helpful way of viewing things. And I don't think it's especially helpful or productive. I had this other point just about the information age and cynicism, which is the sense of everything that happens. I know it's going to happen. Like yeah. with, uh, with politics, people rolling their eyes at everything and saying, oh, how predictable. And I actually think part of the appeal of extremism and demagogues is that they're just unpredictable. You don't know what's going to happen. And for a lot of people, I think that's worth a lot because it's entertaining if nothing else. Yeah, but I feel like we're, <laughs> it's like we know that our actions have consequences. Like we've, as little as we know about history, we know that when we do things just kind of out of boredom or we do things out of desperation, usually the results aren't good. Like we need to be a bit more, we need to plan a little bit, but we need to, yeah, take responsibility, I guess, just is the crux of that. And I guess that kind of relates to what we were saying earlier about the looking inwards 
for a relationship to the future and the past of like, what do I have to offer? What's that place in me that kind of hasn't been tapped yet? Yeah. Continuing that theme and continuing the discussion of the solar sites, mm-hmm. how the people of the proposed utopian future contextualize their past and their future. Yeah. I know it might sound kind of confusing to people. <laughs> it's like um, in calculus when you do graphs of other graphs. Yeah. It's like four dimensional. I had this idea of, you know, when people push that notion of self-love um, so that you can grow as an individual. Mm-hmm. I think it's like that, but just on a culture wide scale. People say that if you want to grow, you have to accept and kind of integrate with your flaws. Yeah. And not just say, oh, I'm really bad. I hate myself. And because that just creates a cycle of self-loathing or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's, I think, a good way of characterizing where we're at as a culture right now. Yeah. And another quote I read recently, which is that it's like a bicycle. You'll go where your eyes go. And Mm -hmm. I think that might be true of society as well. Society goes where the eyes go. So as for thinking of the future... I think in general, I mean, just as a disclaimer, I think the solar scene people should think less of it, mm. like not think of it as less, but spend less time considering the future because yeah. I don't think that's always the most productive um, and spend more time thinking about the small scale community or individual idea of who will I become because that's, yeah. or who will my family become or who will mm-hmm. my town become because that's a little bit more relevant and that like the future is just made up of you in 10 years times 8 billion yeah and yeah i think there's a little bit like too much large-scale thinking about the future of the species from my observations tends to lead in two directions into nihilism or into utopianism like us Mm -hmm. and you kind of uh, denounce at the start neither of which are probably really healthy like i don't think it's it would be great if everyone was burying their heads in the sand of the solar scene Mm -hmm. but sometimes i think just a little once a week escape i guess yeah. Not really escape though, it's more of a blueprint. I mean, we were talking about manifestation journals and like the power of writing like I am statements and putting pictures of like what you want your future to look like on pages. And it, when you get it down there, it's like you're not constantly opening it up every time you're like going to buy something or every time you're making a decision like, to look at it. The act of putting it on paper was enough to inspire your consciousness to make positive decisions and I feel like listening to this podcast or recording this podcast is enough it's not like I'm listening to this all week saying yeah this is what the solar thing is gonna look like and ignoring the pandemic yeah climate change etc yeah I mean I I guess once a week was kind of a a silly thing to say but it's about the future having a proper place in your mind Mm -hmm. yeah and the past having a proper place in your mind and as I said like a bicycle society will hopefully go where Mm -hmm. we want it to go although I guess with Hesiod it didn't because it actually did improve from him on Mm -hmm. But my reasoning for that was that he still had something to live up to. It's just mm-hmm. that his was fire in the past rather than fire in the future, as might be yeah. in utopians. Yeah. I feel like the solicine people, when they're thinking about the future, they're you either mean the thinking. The Sorry for interrupting. They will either think short term future or long term future. Right now, we're stuck in this weird, like, we're either thinking about way after us and our whole entire lineage has, like, died off, basically. Or we're thinking, ooh, if I buy this stock, I'm going to be rich in a few months or a few weeks. And we don't think about the long-term investments in like, okay, two generations down the road, if we pollute in this river, they're not going to have a fun place to go swimming. We just have, like, I feel like the places in the future that our focus is right now are off and they need to be kind of readjusted to 
different places in the future. Recalibration. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very specific way of ending the episode. Unless yeah. you had any other things that you wanted to close on. Can I close on my statement on what the solo site's future vision is? Yeah, of course. So my statement that I wrote is that all choices consider sustainability. We know now that life isn't static and our actions have consequences. as something they can manifest and build, but that can come to be in the now too. So that means basically like we want to have a vision for something that can be, but realize that our actions like can make it happen now on like a small scale. And finally, we have to be open to our role in shaping the future, not just deconstruct the past. Ooh. Yeah. I like that. Thank you. That's what people say, right? It's like, if you want to change the world, think about what you're going to build mm-hmm. for the future and not what you're going to take down from the past. Yeah, you need to stand for something. Not just against things. Mm-hmm. Lovely. If you want to consume... <laughs> If you want to consume more Solocene content, uh, check us out on TikTok and Instagram. It's all in the description. Also, the Solocene blog, also known as Aaron's Poetic Musings. Yeah. Thanks. Bye.